0: Welcome, Luke Butler, to the Back of the House podcast.
1: Thanks, Michael.
0: <laughs> He's, after all, your That's brainchild. We like should acknowledge that. that. You were you were there wondering with why, and then you met me, and your life changed, and now we have a podcast together.
1: Hmm. What's been going on? This is a random start, so we'll just move along. What's happening I, with you?
0: I, I, I feel like it's floundering towards the finish time, you know, when you're just like... Just going, oh, is that the end in sight? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Um, And just trying to get things done before the end of the year, really. Um, But, uh, yeah, we just announced launching the Check, Check, Check campaign into Victoria uh, because they've reopened, which is great news. And much like the experience in Sydney, the Victorian consumer behaviours are mirroring our what, what what happens when you, you lock people up for a long time and and uh, and you know haven't really necessarily nailed new behaviours and venues haven't necessarily got all their stuff together so we want to get the check 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 campaign up and running there to I guess uh, positively influence uh, outcomes and ensure we don't get uh, outbreak down there. What about you, mm. uh,
1: mate? I on a genuinely do not think I've ever been this busy. Um, Every single person in our business is at complete capacity. Um, it's, you it's, like, I know we've spoken about it in previous episodes, but it's, it is uh, an incredibly challenging talent market for a lot of operators. Um, there's simply not enough people in Australia at the moment, I think, to service the levels of trade that we have, um, even with. You know, it's parts of the CBD lockdown and um, venues not even able to trade at full capacity. It's just, it's it's crazy to see what's happening. Um, so mate, that's keeping us busy, but it's all it's all, I guess that that aspect is positive for us, obviously. But the, um, you know, the I, I feel for some venues that are, just don't have enough people to open. So fingers crossed that changes. I uh, don't know how well unless we can produce people matrix style, but. Um, Mate, it's, uh, we've got an excellent guest today, one that I've been looking forward to for a very, very long time. So uh, Mark Hawthorne is um, former CEO um, of McDonald's um, across a pretty wide region um, and then moved to CEO of GYG and played an ex- uh, exceptionally pivotal role. Uh, in development of that company. So um, we haven't had a guest from that space on this podcast before. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, No. But... yeah, I've been wanting to speak to him for a long time, so really excited to have a chat with
0: him. Yeah, well, I think uh, the only guest I can think that is vaguely similar might be Shane Bayer uh, from, uh, yeah, in, in, in terms of the scale and, I guess, global perspective um, and type maybe of uh, QSR stuff that uh, those guys do as well. But uh, yeah, I am think this will be a fascinating perspective, one I'm looking forward to learning from.
1: Well, let's do it uh so um mark thanks for joining us it's a pleasure to have you on i think i've been peppering you with invitations to come on this podcast for a couple of years now and finally uh have got you on the hook yes. um thought look a good place to start would be just if you could provide a bit of an overview as to how you ended up where you are today um and and what we tend to do obviously explain this to you already but um have a look at the way some, I guess, highly successful large careers. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just call out two positions you've held, but I'm like a CEO and managing director of McDonald's, which is obviously um, a huge role, uh, and we'll get into that. And, and then same or similar role within um, Guzman. Um, how did you get to that point and start at the very first entry into hospitality and then um, lead
2: us all the way up to the top? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, uh, uh, so, I, Cross Harbor boy. I'm Cross Harbour boy. I'm a non-city boy growing up and I started at McDonald's in Cross Harbour on my 15th birthday, literally on my birthday. And, you know, from there, you, you never had the intent at that time thinking you'd work for McDonald's for the great part of your life. But uh, fast forward 27 years and, Um, and there you were and I I guess I was a a great story of someone from the um, cooking burgers up to the up to the boardroom but I but uh, I think the important part in that is that whilst I was a manager in McDonald's uh, finishing my HSC I did my accounting degree Um, and then I did actually leave McDonald's for two years and went work for Ernst & Young Uh, ironically working on the provisional liquidation of Domino's Pizza back in the early 90s who would have thought they were in Provisional liquidation with where they are now, but obviously they had their um, uh, challenging times back then. Um, but then came back to McDonald's in the head office in Sydney in the uh, in the finance area, and then worked my way up through uh, finance and supply chain. I opened the Boston market chain um, in uh, in Australia as one of two people to do that. Um, a few years in supply chain, and then I was lucky enough to become the CEO of McDonald's in New Zealand, and that was after I did a lot of work in. Uh, when I was in supply chain, uh, about taking the New Zealand supply chain and Australian supply chain and making it one bigger uh, scale supply chain. And the good news of that is that we delivered quite a few savings, particularly in the New Zealand market, and the franchisees there seemed to like that. So it set up a nice pathway into leading uh, that market. And then from there, I spent uh, two years looking after McDonald's Middle East Africa, which was very interesting for a poor old Coffs Harbour boy seeing. Very different part of the world, uh, and then ended up being the um, CEO of McDonald's in the United Kingdom. Which, again, from a guy growing up in Coffs Harbour, uh, um, UK, would be the third biggest McDonald's market in the world, with um, you know five six billion dollar business, thirteen hundred stores, and over a hundred thousand employees. So that was an enormous uh, market. But after but after being overseas for nine years, it was time to come home, and I actually thought that. I was done with food. I thought, you know, I've worked with the biggest food brand in the entire world. Um, I'll go and do something else in food. And I was pretty determined to do that. But then when I came home, I uh, got introduced to Guzmani Gomez. I'd never seen it before because it first opened in Newtown in 2006, which is the year I went to New Zealand. But a couple of the ex-McDonald's legends in Australia had bought into it. Steve German, CFO for many years at McDonald's. Peter Ritchie, who was the first employee, McDonald's Australia, Guy Russo, CEO, and became the Kmart CEO, had all bought into Guzmani Gamers, so they introduced me to the, uh, to the founder. Um, and I was still pretty keen not to do food, but I must say I saw the quality of the food, I saw how fast I was serving it, and I hadn't seen that in 27 years of working in QSR, um in god knows how many countries that i actually work in i never saw that combination of high quality fresh food served at mcdonald's type speed so i looked at that and said there's something really in this and i decided to meet the founder and he's a very inspiring man uh stephen marks and uh, co-founder robert hazen um very inspirational people couple of new yorkers who met australian women and and uh, married them and got dragged out to Australia. Terrible place to get dragged out to. And they saw that the quality of Mexican food was horrendously bad in Sydney and, and felt there was a strong market uh, for that and, and and built something special. But very inspirational, energetic uh, people. And you and I just couldn't help but want to be part of what they were building. Uh, and I became CEO there in uh, 2015. Um, and did that role for uh, just under five years.
0: And when you came into that as CEO, what was your um, mandate uh, at Guzman?
2: Well, it's a very good question, and, and I the first question I had for the founder was, you know, what's your long term vision? And he said he wanted to be the best restaurant company in the world. I said, well, you know, like many founders, you know, that's a, an aspirational goal of of, uh, of course. And I said, well, you mean bigger than McDonald's? He, he, yes. And it was, his yes was just like, well, of course, yes. <laughs> and I said, well, um, great. I said, but, you know, I mean, if you want to be the best in the world, you've got to be in the biggest segment of food in the world, which is QSR or fast food. Um, and you're not fast food at the moment. So that would be an enormous change for where you're at at the moment. And, um, you know, it took us a while to get our head around that. Um, but we eventually agreed if you want to be the best best restaurant in the world, that's where you've got to be. Otherwise, you've got to change your goal. And so um, after, within 90 days, as many CEOs do, you come up with a strategic plan and we decided that we wanted to reinvent fast food um, and move Guzmani Gomez into what I'd say was fast casual, it was a bit of a Mexican version of grilled um, hamburgers and make it a Mexican version of McDonald's, uh, which was, it it took an enormous amount of things to do, but I I hope you would see it's been a very successful move by the brand. Can I ask... And probably display a fair bit of ignorance
1: here, but as a, an, a a consumer, I probably wouldn't have outlined or or acknowledged too many differences. Like when you say you didn't think Guzman was fast food, I, I, I was just like, oh, wh- why not? Like, what, what what was it that you actually had to change um, to get it from where where it was to where you thought it needed to be to, to be uh, justified or qualified as being
2: fast food? Well, the big thing about fast food, I guess, is uh, that, that they're drive-through uh, operations. And, and, and McDonald's, some, you know, in Australia, 65% of sales go through drive-through. I don't think KFC is too much different. So, um, and, and then of course, the other big difference with fast food is the price points uh, are normally less than fast casual as well. You've got to have food that's portable because if most of your sales are through drive-through, you've got to be able to hold and eat. Uh, which is which is really important. So so gyg didn't have a lot of that. What they did have, which was really important, is they had an operating platform um, that was like a V eight engine. They could they, you could serve five hundred people an hour in a gyg kitchen. Now um, most of the other competitors like Subway or Mad Mex, you now the ones that make it in front of you, um, and then and it's got a single single line um, prep prep line. Um, they don't. They can't do 500 people transactions in an hour. So they would really struggle to move their brand into the fast food space because if you're going to add significantly more volume to a drive through channel, you need obviously the engine room to be able to pump it out. So the good news was that GyG had that, which was a, which was a fantastic starting point. Um, but we spent uh, many years. We had to obviously uh, change our real estate strategy. It takes about two years to find a site to put a drive through to the time you actually open it by getting the deal done, getting council consents, the construction period, et cetera. Uh, we uh, launched fries in GYG. I still think they're the best fries uh, in the whole QSR marketplace, but I'm probably biased. Uh, we launched the mini range. So the um, there's mini burritos, mini bowls, um, and that was important because we got the portion size down, the mini burritos slightly still bigger than a Big Mac, um, but importantly, it provided a price point that would enable GyG to compete in the uh, in the fast food space. And, and 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 part of the the massive benefits of that uh, was that it also introduced a, a a new demographic of customer for GyG because GyG was sixty five percent eighteen to thirty five, mm. which is a great demographic to be in because that's your millennials that every single brand is trying to go after. But it was still quite a limited demographic, so. By introducing fries and mini portions and lower value items, all of a sudden the uh, market aggressively extended into the high school teenager uh, market, which gave us you know a massive vehicle in. So uh, on, on top of all of that, we had to change menu, we had to change price point, real estate, and then your technology had to be revisited because you're adding a whole different channel from a uh, you know technology sense. Get um, the right get the right talent in. Uh, to bring into life so it was it was quite a few layers of changes that we needed to do to bring um, drive-throughs and and um, QSR to life for Guzman de Gomez but the, but the important point is and, and I guess one of the reasons we did it was when you when you look at how big the white space can be is that a fancy word people use white space Um if you're fast food, you can you can open a restaurant on the corner of every main and main uh, around Australia. Now, McDonald's have 1,000 stores, KFC have 650. When you have a look at the way GYG was going, it's very possible that GYG can be at least 500 restaurants um, in, GY, in Australia by going into the uh, fast food space. If you're not in fast food, you really become more limited to your CBD outlets, your shopping centres and your main populated uh, Shopfront areas, and if you map that out, you could probably get to about 200, 250 stores. So, um, importantly for GYG, it opened up a whole new market white space uh, opportunity, and then you you load on top of that, um, it then created an opportunity for GYG to go to the US, because uh, we, we I, say, I still say we because I'm a shareholder, but I'm obviously no longer an employee, um, but We've always, we've always been questioned about why we went to the US because there's there's a thousand and thousands of different Mexican restaurants there. You've got Taco Bell there, you've got Chipotle, Bar, Fresh the many, many um, Mexican chains. But when you when you pack those out, you've got Chipotle is probably the biggest, but they don't do drive-throughs. You've got Taco Bell do drive-throughs, but their quality is horrendously bad and, and an extremely cheap price point. The brand, there was there was no one with good quality Mexican food, and you've, I assume you've tried GYG, so you know what it's like, there was no one with good quality food that could serve it through a drive through at McDonald's-type speed. None of that exists in the US. So when you look at the US market, they love Mexican, they love drive through it was a very, very strong market niche and for us it became quite obvious, but only because we had originally decided to reposition it into the QSR space. I guess the... Um what are some of the challenges associated with
1: executing um, the GYG model in the American market? I mean, is there a reason why some of the businesses that were already operating that you've mentioned um, couldn't deliver that? And did you find, I mean, is the fresh produce a challenge or is, are, are there extenuating sort of circumstances or factors that have, have stopped other businesses from moving into that space or was it just
2: a gap that was there yeah, for the but- taking? Major gap. As I said before, if you look at Chipotle, Chipotle is like let's say a Mad max but it's, it's it's that they make it in front of you type. You know, line so if you back, if you go back to what I said before, Chipotle can't go in a drive-through on this. They completely redesign their operating platform um, into if you go to a gyg restaurant, you've got that two. It's a two-sided line, so you've got like double the engine power uh, in the kitchen. So Chipotle would have to completely redesign which I actually think that most brands are going to have to redesign anyway because um, if delivery. I mean, even if they don't do drive-throughs and QSR, delivery is becoming a, a major issue. So, Chipotle is now faced with the challenge of the, their operating platform is really not built for the future uh, of the business. So, I've quite often gone into some QSR restaurants where they've got that single line where they make it in front of you. And it was—it all made sense with years, in years in the past because people could – it was a good thing watching your food being made. You could showcase your ingredients. So there was, there, was a, there was a good logic many years ago. But if you go into those restaurants now and you're lining up in that single line to join that, you know, one line where they make it in front of you, and then a big $100 delivery order hits them. Now, what happens is they've basically got to stop the line. There's been a number of cases where I've that, that said, look, sorry, you'll just have to wait a couple of minutes while we fill this delivery order. And then all of a sudden, as a customer, I'm going, well, are you for real? Um, so, um, so Chipotle are going to have to, uh, I believe, completely redesign their operating platform. At the other end of the scale, Taco Bell have to materially upgrade the quality of their food, but that goes against completely the demographic of the market, I mean, which is a very low price point. So, most of their real estate decisions have been all based on leveraging the low price point. So, if they upgrade the quality of their food and therefore upgrade their menu price, that obviously puts a very strong current customer base in in harm's way.
0: How far's GYG into its American uh, expansion plan? Is it is there runway there, or is it kind of reaching a, a, its endpoint?
2: Well, it's well. There's only one restaurant there, so it's very early days. Um, and I was actually over there for the opening, and uh, part of that was for me to understand the US market more, and I. I spoke to just about every customer that came in the first few days just to get a sense for where you, for how they would take uh, an Australian version for whatever it's a matter of, of, uh, of Mexican and, and the feedback was extraordinarily positive. And, I, and, and importantly, I asked every single one of them, are you, are you aware of a brand that um, does this sort of food through drive-through and they couldn't tell me, which again was very exciting. So, it opened extremely well and then this thing called COVID came along. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, obviously, that put all plans on hold. But from what I understand from um, reading some of the interviews by Stephen, the CEO and founder, I, I believe they're they're looking at sites two, three, and four um, at the uh, at the moment, which is which is really exciting because COVID. We might, we might eventually get to COVID at some point, but COVID completely created two classes of food businesses um, in Australia and, and uh, you know in the world, um, and so with where we. The first site in the US being Napierville in Napierville in Chicago, which was extremely reliant on a lot of local um, business workers. Um, uh, any 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 restaurant that relied on business workers being around there, around their restaurant, have obviously been materially impacted in a negative way. So so it was right to just pause a little bit in the US, but I've got no doubt the size of the market opportunity and the love for the food and the beach we are in over there is extremely positive.
0: I, I think we can go into the COVID discussion now because I think uh, it's, it's all around us. And yes. in, in, in terms of many of the discussions we've had on the podcast during COVID, a lot of it relates to how does this thing impact the future. So we have you. We should ask you in, yes. to, 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 to tell us more. Yeah.
2: Well, I think, I think what COVID's done is there was some trends building in the food industry before COVID came along. And I think what COVID has done has materially accelerated the impact uh, of those of those trends. And and the, the, the big one, the big one is all around convenience. Convenience, convenience wins. Um, I often talk about this reverse correlation in fast food, where I say, the if you were to list brands that you would food brands where you tell your friends and family, I am proud to tell you I've been to these brands today to eat food. McDonald's and KFC would be at the bottom, right? But when you look at business results, McDonald's and KFC have led by far the most growth in the food sector over the last five years. There's this terrible reverse correlation. Only 50% of people trust McDonald's. There's research from years ago when I was there. It probably hasn't changed much. Only 15% say they love them. 20% actually say they hate McDonald's, <laughs> Right. But yet 97% of the population goes each year uh, to uh, to McDonald's. So of the 20% that hate McDonald's, they say hate. Oh, well, hate's a very strong word. <laughs> Pretty strong. <laughs> 17% of that 20 still go once a year. And, you know, I don't know, it's because the kids drag them in or uh, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, there's nothing else. You know, whatever it is, it just shows you that everything points to convenience being king, queen, prince and everything mm. uh, in the, uh, you know, in the in the business. So, which again tells you that why GYG came into uh, fast food because the food games, well, it's simple but it's not. It's simple you've got to have food that people want, you've got to be easily accessible, um, reasonable value and have a brand that people can buy into. If you can get those four, you're on the way. And McDonald's really don't have, you know, you know, I think McDonald's, when they, when they ask people, food I feel good about eating, it's like 16%.
0: Mm.
2: <laughs> right? Um, so they don't really, they're not trusted as a brand, they don't have food that people feel good about eating, but they've got convenience and accessibility. Um, and that's what uh, drives it. And so, so, um, so again, from a GYG perspective, we said, well, we've got the food. I mean, it, it, it kicks McDonald's ass on all metrics um we can serve it as fast as them, and people love the brand i mean it's 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 like we we have the recipe um, to uh, to actually make this work and and you know let's let's you know why should fast food be bad food? I think mean, GYg approved it doesn't need to be uh, bad food so so convenience is king and convenience is obviously drive-throughs um, and more recently delivery mm. has become you know delivery has changed the game in such a very quick period of time. I mean, I remember we bought Deliveroo in the GYG in, I want to say, 2016, four years ago, Um, and it's an everyday thing that people do uh, now. And so, what you saw historically was a lot of people resisted delivery. I mean, how many times have you seen in the media restaurants saying, bugger delivery, I want them... That, you know, that, that commissions are too high, I want people coming in my restaurant, and they just try to move forward without it. And you sit there and go, well, how many businesses have been hemorrhaged when they haven't worked out that the online channel was going to be the way that defined the industry moving forward. You know, Kodak, Blockbuster, even the taxi industry. I mean, they all got savaged because they didn't get convenience technology um, being part of the uh, being part of the equation. So, so what happened when? So that was already working in the background. And and, and um, anyone who didn't uh, commit to making delivery work, I believe, were dying anyway. Before COVID, um, it was just a matter. It was just a matter of time. And um, the future of food for me always was going to be very anti the independent restaurant because if delivery becomes more and more of a mix, the independent restaurants, I believe Uber Eats and delivery charge them 35% as a commission, um, where the McDonald's, GYGs of the world can negotiate significantly better than that. And the other thing for the, uh, for the McDonald's and the GYGs and, uh, and just as important, it's funny uh, I'd say this, but the, is, is the marketing. Um, so, where GYG did really well was just the position on the app for Deliveroo and Uber Eats. So, when you go onto the apps, quite often the first brand you'd see would be GYG. So, not only are you negotiating rates with these aggregators, you're also negotiating uh, marketing and what I'll just call eyeballs on brands. Now, the independent restaurant, therefore, they're paying 35% commission and they're getting no marketing leverage at all on these uh, on these apps. So as delivery becomes a bigger percentage of the mix, it's, it's becoming more of a wedge for these independent restaurants, and they're just dying bit by bit. So um, so what what so what happened, and that was happening before COVID. Um COVID accelerated all of that so what happened with COVID as you all know is that all of a sudden people are working from home Um, they're all anyone in the CBD or most people in the CBD are now actually working at home Um, delivery was becoming more critical because people didn't trust coming into restaurants as much so I mean delivery in most of the fast food chains who were strong on delivery added some 50% of their mix so they were doing 20% on delivery before COVID they were now at 30 Um, so there was this massive growth now of course if delivery is an unprofitable channel channel for you well then that's just making you bleed more Um, and even worse if you weren't in delivery well where's your business Um, gone so so now what you're seeing is the brands the bigger brands who are very suburban based drive-through based are doing records um, uh, again, Stephen's been in the media talking about gy during records. Drive-thrus are doing 30% more than they were before COVID. McDonald's are doing big numbers. KFC doing big numbers. Brands that are in the city um, or reliant on shopping centres are doing minus 50. Mm. So you've, you've, you've seen a complete parting of the waves. Um, and for those that have been aggressively leveraging convenience and been really proactive delivery, are absolutely winning, and, and I think it's going to continue.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Like the a lot of the discussions that we're involved in are around CBD regeneration, renewal, because mm. of this exact discussion that we're having, which is that a lot of market participants have, especially at the um, pointy end, have a lot of exposure to high concentration of um, population in these areas. And yeah, I don't think that uh, anyone listening can uh, disagree in terms of uh, the, the these things. One is that. Um, when it does come back and if it does come back, it, it, won't, it won't be the same. I, so there's an if about when it comes back and I think that most people would sort of say it's a couple of years away, um, um, you know, because of changing of work habits and all of these types of things before you overlay the economic impact of the pandemic. Um, and I suppose, like, do you think that, that that these habits will then get hardwired, I guess, is probably the next uh, thought I would have? Is that...?
2: Yes. Yeah. I think it's yes and yes and your, your point's a very valid one and, and I think... I think the risk now for the the very successful brands, because most good leaders have this sense of positive dissatisfaction about them. Um, And uh, so I look at the big – so so you're right, I think there's going to be – after COVID there'll be a shift of all those people going back in the city, but not all of them. You know, I I think it goes without saying that can people be trusted to work from home question has been asked and answered. And I think there will be a bigger percentage of people working from home. Maybe some of them will work from home for good. Maybe some of them might do one or two days. But there's going to be a percentage of the personnel that are now going to be at home versus being in the city. So, I don't think the city stores will ever come back to where they were before. Um, I think they will come back some of the way. And then they're going to have to completely rethink their business model moving forward to go, is the city thing actually the thing we can rely on moving forward? Maybe they can still work, but they're probably relying on the landlords giving significantly lower rents, which they're probably entitled to because the food traffic around the areas is now less. Um, And and now you've got the big ones that are doing records at the moment. And and they're they're, they're nice challenges to have, but they're also challenges because the the, the chains that are doing 30% comps or increases year on year because of all of that work-from-home phenomena, if a lot of those people go back into the city, there's a risk that, at some point, they might run into some minus five and minus tens for the sake of the argument. Now, that's still good on a two year stack. You know, if you do plus 30 and then minus five, you sort of over two years, you're averaging plus 10, 15 year on year, and you're going, that's great. But it, but it, it can become a little destabilizing for the business. So so the issue for leaders in your McDonald's and your KFCs and your Guzmani Gomez's are going to be um, twofold. Um, one, how do we map out a bit of volatility in the future and how to make sure we manage the organization um, for when that happens? Because negative comps do speak people. But the other big issue, which again is a positive one, is if McDonald's, KFC, GYG think that they can just add 20-30% to sales and provide a great customer experience, it's being a little naive because. If you need 30% more sales, you need to hire more people, you need to make sure inventory levels are right. Have you got seating capacity issues? Have you got car parking capacity issues? You know, a lot of these restaurants now have often there's more delivery drivers in the restaurants than yep. the customers. Yeah. Um, looking over customers eating their um, you know, food. You see bags of like ten bags of food waiting to be picked up by delivery drivers. So so to think that the customer experience is good. Uh, I think leaders should be very positively dissatisfied, very positive about the results, to be very dissatisfied about the quality of their operations in the restaurants. Now, if, if the quality of the operations are terrible in their restaurant, which is leading to a bad customer experience, that can have future impact, of course, because as you know, if customers get a bad experience, they may not come back again, and then there's an impact on the, you know, on the brand. So, so again, I think there's been a parting of the waves, and depending on which wave you're on you've now got a material amount of things to think about (laughs) Uh, as a business.
1: Can we, I'm conscious of the amount of time that we have, and I would um, – I really want to get into uh, – this is two two-pronged question, but um, there's actually probably 15 questions in here. And I'll try and shape it as well and concisely as I can. But going from McDonald's for 20 years um, – Obviously, it's a highly um, diverse um, portfolio of sites, locations, people, um, I would imagine, um, that you're looking after. Um, and then going into. And, and I would assume there's a pretty significant level of rigidity within that business as well, just through necessity. Yes. Um, to then go into a smaller business, um, obviously, um, in GYG, was that, how was that transition for you from a leadership perspective – um was it was it easy was it um, i guess was there a sense of kind of liberation for lack of yes. a better word and in going into somewhere where you could probably be a bit more agile and
2: dynamic mm. um but yeah, can you talk us through yes. that experience yeah, all, all of the above i mean it, it was they're two very different um scenarios of course and you know on ed mcdonald's despite it being massive quite a process driven place um and, you know, obviously the uh, public listed company in the, in the U.S. And interestingly, in my time in McDonald's, it was it was mostly about because of that phenomena of convenience being king, queen and prince and princess, um, a lot of the opportunities at McDonald's were driven by more improving capacity. Um, and McDonald's was, um, you think about their growth over the last 10 years, a lot of it was through increasing trade to 24-7, um, putting a double drive-through lane on, increased sales by ten percent in drive-throughs. Um, working out, I think they think they've now got three windows in the drive-through because they started doing the cafe coffee. Um, you know, McDonald's re-imaged their restaurants, and part of that was putting more seating in. So, uh, McDonald's is a phenomena that just keeps on growing, and the and the growth was more about beating to the man than creating it, which was quite um, phenomenal. But you you had all the technology systems that were in place. It was it was it was a machine that just needed a bit of a push. Um, to get the business uh, growing, so when I, so when I came to gyg, um, firstly it's a founder-led business, and before you talk about the size of a business, managing a founder-led business is in its own category, and so that was a that was a first for me. Um, and as you've probably seen in many other, not just food businesses, but many sectors, it's a pretty tricky time because quite often founders. They've grown something fabulous, but then it gets to a point where their expertise not necessarily is about scaling something. They're more entrepreneurial people that like creating things. So, often they get to a point where they either, they get to that point where they know they need to bring some expertise in to scale. They either don't and try and do it themselves and stuff it up, or they do, and then there's a possible CEO founder conflict that can either be really great or really bad for the business. It's a, it's a sliding doors moment. Um, so, for me, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the transition was working out how to manage in a fan led um, environment. Uh, and I would say that that was really tricky because obviously when I came in, you know, obviously you come in going, well, I was a CEO of McDonald's $6 billion business, just let me come in and do my thing. But you very quickly, re- you, you quickly realised that how exceptional the founder is Um, and whilst they mightn't be an expert at scaling things um, they still have this entrepreneurial strength about them Um, they're still very much loved as the face of the brand they're still very loved by the people um, in the restaurant so you've got to you've got to position yourself as CEO in a way that really still embraces the founder um, and to set the business up accordingly and to making sure that you're leading the business in some ways through the founder um, versus with them on the, uh, the sideline, an absolute, um, you know, critical part. But outside of the founder, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I came to GYG, sales comps were negative in financial year 2015. Um, every technology system, we ultimately ended up changing um, whether that's point of sale, inventory, um, time and attendance, the FPOS—you um, know, you name it. I'm sure there's. I'm sure that we built our own app because the other one wasn't wasn't fit for purpose. Um, there was 34 people in the office by the time I left. There was 90, um, and you're not just adding um, the number. You're adding the right organizational structure and, and, the, and the and the right quality of the. Um, you know, of the candidates. So, um, and the franchisees, there was, there was 15 franchisees when I started and, and managing franchisees is a skill set in itself. So, that obviously needed a lot of work and by the time I left, I think there was 55 um, of them. So, um, and the other thing for me was I never had to deal with banks. Um, McDonald's Chicago was like a money tree. <laughs> it's sort of it's I wanna I want to open twenty restaurants next year. I I need uh, um hundred million dollars done the next day. Where all of a sudden um you're dealing with bank covenants here. Um two years into my CEO ship, we introduced private equity into GYG, so all of a sudden you're dealing with private equity. So there was there was um I had a $250 million marketing budget in McDonald's. All of a sudden, I had a $3 million marketing budget um, in, in GYG, which needed obviously a complete um, complete rethink about how to do marketing. So, um, there was so many differences um, on moving to a startup, probably more than I expected. But I'd probably tell you on the back of it, I've probably learned more and, and for my own development – have probably got more out of my five years at GYG than my years at McDonald's because of all of that.
0: Um, I, I have to ask this question. It's going yes. to – we have to cut it, but I can't help but note that the movie The Founder came out in 2016. Now, yes. how much of that performance by Michael Keaton in the context of that movie shaped your thinking at GYG?
2: Um, not much, I, Not much, to be uh, to be honest. Um <laughs> The movie was a good movie. There was, there was a couple of fibs at the end, uh, mind you. I um, I don't think uh, Ray Croc was as nasty at the end as what that movie would make you to believe. But he was he was a pretty tough man. But you know when you when you're building something special, you you have to be tough. Yeah. Uh, in, in, a, in a in a few certain areas, but. Um, but um, but 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 Stephen and Robert were you know were founders, so there was a little bit of self-reflection <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you'd expect oh, no. there to be yeah and and mark, I mean just uh, I think that many people that listen to this are in leadership positions in yeah. hospitality and beyond actually, so mm-hmm. in terms of your style of leadership, how would you characterize it
2: yeah I'm, i uh, I'm, I'm quite a people person I'm a, i, I uh, humility is very important to me. Uh, and I think that's more expected of, of leaders these days. I'm not too sure if you've read my profile, but after I left GYG, I spent some time Uber driving just here and there just to um, sort of keep myself pretty, pretty grounded. Um, but I think leaders need to be um, – the old way of leadership doesn't work these days. I mean, the whole lead with fear and be a very directive leader is, is, is not going to work for you these days. So you need to be calm, you need to be humble, but you need to be strong. Um, when you need to be, uh, I don't think one thing that hasn't changed is um, recruiting exceptional talent that you're comfortable to delegate to. You have to lead through your people um, because as a CEO, if you get too involved in the detail, you can't lead. Um, and that was um, so. I'm, I'm a very big fan of backing my people. Uh, I will have a view on everything, but. I will only overrule my people if I have a very, very strong view, and that, that, that's rarely, uh, rarely the case. You've got to be, uh, I'll call it top and tail leadership. As, as a leader, I think uh, you've got to be very strong at managing the strategic vision of the business um, from the helicopter level, more so importantly than ever with COVID, mm. which I can talk to a little bit more um, if you'd like. And then you need to be at the tail, which is at the front line of your business. I mean, everybody's a bit nervous through COVID. Um, Leaders really need to be seen as one of the people in the restaurants and and really having a strong connection with what's happening at the front line, a strong connection with uh, how the customers uh, are seeing your business and making sure that your people genuinely believe you're one of them. Um, which means it's important that you know the operations and it's important you have that humility, humility about you uh, to bring that to life. So that's your top and tail. And then what you need is the middle bit being bringing the strategy to life the day-to-day to the business. That's what you have great people for sitting in the uh, office, um, bringing that to life. But, you know, the challenge for people these days and leaders is um, COVID is a lot of leadership for COVID has been defensive, it's been about how, how does a business survive, workplace safety, how do we make sure we're managing all the government regulations? So it's sort of like a war room that's like a defensive pack. Um, where if you go back to what I said before, businesses need to reshape what they're doing, if even if they're losing or winning. Um, and so it's like you need a war room that's on the attack mode, um, thinking about if you've been completely devastated through COVID, How do you reposition if you've done really well? How do you make sure the customer experience is great? How do you make sure ongoing volatility is managed? How do you make sure you don't become complacent? And in some ways, how do you make sure, you know, dare I say, as ugly as it sounds, within the rules of the ACCC, there are some competitors who are literally on their knees. It could be time to put the sword to some of them. Um, And, you know, I actually actually look at McDonald's, GYG and KFC and think there's actually still upside to all three of them Um, if they put some moves in place to really capitalise uh, on this opportunity. But they've first got to make sure they're meeting their current demand well and then instead of being complacent, putting the victory flag up, saying these sales are great, let's have a rest, it's really now time to go in for the kill if they wanted to. Uh, within the Australian competition laws because you can't deliberately kill competition just to make that very, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, very, very clear. Um, and I think from a leadership in the third sense, I think the other two big ones for me are delivery, embrace it or die. You've got to make the delivery model, you know, work, whether that's through the rates, whether that's through your menu pricing um, or being very good at leveraging your marketing negotiations with the aggregators. Um, is very important, and um, marketing. I generally think marketing, marketing, McDonald's is old school. It's still 70% probably on TV advertising, where GYG is 70% social media. Um, And how marketing is done is completely being reshaped because the movement into digital channels is also going to continue in the same direction. Um, so, uh, I think McDonald's could be a lot more modern, um, in their, uh, in their marketing, but that could be a whole other webcast. (laughs) Oh, well, um, funnily enough, I have
0: another podcast called Time Out for Business, uh, so you'll get an invite from that very shortly (laughs) after this one. I
2: think that's it, but, 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 a lot of people in your organisation feel, you know, it's still, it's still a tricky time for a lot of people. So, um, and we haven't even talked about franchisees. I mean, franchisees, obviously, you know, particularly for the ones where the sales and revenues being materially impacted in a negative way, um, you know, making sure your franchisees are okay. Well, I will actually, phrase making sure the franchisees that are great franchisees are okay. I think when it comes to the world of franchisees, um, if, if you look at franchising as I do, which is through a talent lens. I mean, a lot of people look at franchising as an economic lens. It's the mean to use someone else's capital to grow, which I think if that's your lens, it always ends up in disaster. It's just a matter of when. Um, I always look at franchisees going, choose franchisees who can run it better than yourself, and they will always drive a better revenue and brand experience at the front line than you can in corporate stores. That's been proven time and time again. Um, so, for a lot of, uh, you know, I've said to some people when it comes to franchising going, in this time, there's going to be a lot of franchisees that are in trouble in some brands. This is an opportunity. Don't 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 try and do a cut and paste situation to every franchisee. This is an opportunity to go from it use a talent lens and go. You franchisees from a talent sense are poor performing, and it's probably creating a window for you to possibly deal with them if not remove them within the laws of franchising code. Um, but be prepared to to possibly support more your highest quality franchisees because if if your highest quality franchisees from a talent lens are doing exceptionally well but are in trouble, they're worth the investment like you invest in any talent to making sure they come through on the other side well Um, because I too strongly still believe that high-performing franchisees will drive the business and brand at a great faster rate um, than you running them as corporate stores yourself.
1: In terms of culture and, and um, its relevance to McDonald's, primarily, just given the scale, and I think that's a—it's a topic that is close to the heart of most of the listeners within hospitality, because it's obviously, so vital and and, and every business really, but um, few businesses probably with the geographic spread, volume of people, um, and I would assume a, a pretty diverse mix of socioeconomic kind of breakup as well. If you take the frontline worker to the franchisee, I mean, some of them own a pretty wide network of stores and, are, you know, financially very well off. Um, how how, did, how does that company um, look to build culture across such diversity?
2: It's it's cultures. It's a, it's a tough thing because culture for me is if you don't have it, you can't get it. it it's, it's sometimes um, if it, Let me start with GYG before I go to McDonald's because GYG had, I mean, Stephen and Robert, the founders, created a very, very strong culture from day one. I mean, partly, I mean, uh, more than half the workers in GYG restaurants are Latin themselves, which provides some good authenticity, but it creates a very strong culture in the restaurants, you know, as well. So, part of the issue becomes... How do you, as you grow, make sure you don't lose that? Because when GYG was in its early days, Stephen and Robert were personally able to go into every single restaurant and they knew absolutely every single person. I mean, you build culture and relationship through that. So there's always a challenge we talk through about as we grow, how do we keep that going? So we were very deliberate in making sure that Stephen was, you know, Stephen, most of his time was actually still spent in the restaurants, um, you know, making sure that he had a very strong presence. He was still the face of the brand uh moving um you know moving forward mcdonald's is a tricky one because i'd say the the level of culture is different from market to market um because through most most of the countries through the world mcdonald's can either be a two restaurant brand all the way up to fifteen thousand in the uh uh in the u.s and then even in the certain markets you'll have different levels of culture in different you know high performing franchisees normally create a pretty good culture in their restaurants lower performing ones create a terrible one um so it's always about um how do you how does the leader create culture in their restaurants and the global ceo or the ceo of McDonald's obviously with all their restaurants has a a, a, a role to play in that but but nothing nothing beats the face-to-face interaction with the leader um and so that comes back to again my very strong point choosing outstanding franchisees is a key vehicle to driving culture um, in, the, in the restaurants. Driving key talent uh, drives culture. And you definitely want a CEO that creates the environment. I think Stephen Marks does that exceptionally well, um, that creates the broad theme and energy. Because um, being found to you look, Richard Branson is another example that um, creates good culture in Virgin because that comes from the top. Um, But you've got to get the CEO and the people who are literally leading the front lines to be the right talent to drive the culture because no matter what you do in the head office, if you don't have the people in the front line driving the culture, it just won't work.
1: So, first off the rank, I cab off the rank, favourite book that you recently read or podcast that you're listening to?
2: Yeah, well, actually, I've, I've got into podcasts uh, myself. Um, I've been listening to a guy um, who's in the US. He's a guy called Sam Harris. Um, and I actually found him uh, – he used to be quite strong in the world on religion and atheism and stuff like that, and I listened to him a bit there, but he more recently – got into uh, the US and the politics and all the issues facing the, the US, and I think for a lot of us, we look at the US, and apart from possibly being the number one reality TV show um, in the world, you're seeing these issues over there, and I, I was pretty determined to try and understand them uh, to a higher level, so I, I listened to Sam Harris on a couple of podcasts where he went through his view on, um, and he was quite anti-Donald uh, Trump. But he was also very critical of, of how everybody was managing the issues in the US. Um, and uh, so it was, I, I found it a, a fascinating podcast to uh, improve my understanding of the issues uh, over there.
1: Okay, nice. Uh... Next one, favourite album or artist that you uh, are listening to right now? And this doesn't have to be right now. It could be your There's,
2: favourite artist of all time. Uh, I, I refell back in love with Freddie Mercury oh. and Sierra. Queen. I, always lo- I went through a period in my early 20s loving them and then got distracted by others. And then when the, the, uh, the movie came back out with Freddie Mercury and all those songs coming back at me, um, fell in love with them again. So Queen would be my uh, number one pick. Fleetwood Mac, close second. Right. I'm <laughs> um, probably giving my age away a little bit there. I'm
0: totally fine by me. Totally fine by me. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think given the, uh, what is it, the cranberry juice thing, I think Fleetwood Mac has kind of floated yes. back, back to the top of a lot of people's playlists. yeah um, on the topic of drinks, what are you drinking when you're having a drink? What's the uh, go-to drink of choice?
2: Oh, don't judge me, but I am a major lover of cocktails. Yeah, right. particularly <laughs> particularly, <laughs> particularly the sweet ones. I have a... Inner child and sweet tooth of a, of a thirteen-year-old, um, I think. So I, uh, I love the sweet cocktails. I'm only pretty hopeless at making them. So I end up with a uh, a gin and tonic or a chardonnay from uh, uh, from Napa Valley or a Pinot Noir from uh, Central Otago, New Zealand. But if there's a cocktail on hand, I'm uh, I'm all over it. <laughs> What's
1: the number one? What, would, what
2: I, I oh, think you cut out before? I don't know if you said it, but uh, pina colada. Nice, yeah, right. one judge. There is no, <laughs> mate, there is nothing
1: wrong with a pina colada.
2: It bottle. goes, oh, it goes straight to your thighs, though. It's full of dairy. It's, it's really not good for you, but I love it. <laughs> ah, they're all
1: good. Um, Favorite venue, um, uh, and this would be restaurant, bar, cafe, um, yes. you know, fast food joint. I, which
2: I love, uh, Queen Chow. It's uh, okay. In Manly, because I'm a Northern Beaches boy. I love premium Asian and uh, Queen Chow is that with a beautiful view of Manly. I'd still say from a fast food sense, I would honestly say that GYG remains my favourite. I probably have it twice uh, a week. I do get yes, a sneaky, right. Just to make sure I'm chopping the competition, I do get a sneaky uh, KFC at McDonald's in at least once a week as well. <laughs> right. Don't, don't, don't tell too many people in. It's amazing hey. because when, when you're the CEO of McDonald's for so many years, you weren't allowed to go to KFC in case you were caught. The CEO of McDonald's going to KFC was an issue. So I, I can now go through a drive through and it's like a child... It's, a, it's whole new it's new to me
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad there's someone eating mcdonald's as much as me i think if anyone knows it's, me i'm a it's, a it's a bit of a fanboy moment being the ceo mcdonald's because i love it that much um finally uh who in the industry are you most inspired by um so in any any level of relationship there is totally fine but who would you look to for inspiration
2: I'll be, uh, again, honest, um, and I I still think Stephen Marks, the founder and CEO of GYG, is still, I find, the most inspiring person in the industry. I, I genuinely think GYG is well-positioned for a massive future. You know, I'm pretty proud of the work I did to, I guess, reset the brand and work with him to take it through its teenage years for one of the – a better one, but he was absolutely the right person to take it uh, take it back, and his energy values – um his 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 inspiration levels. Um I, I don't I don't think there's anyone who's close. Uh to to be honest. I have a high regard for him and I, I genuinely think GYG is in for massive things. And maybe not in my lifetime, but I actually think they will catch up to McDonalds at some point. Well,
0: um well, we can, we can only hope. It will be great to have a, an Aussie export sort of uh, take first place. <laughs> hey, Mark, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Uh, we're conscious of your time and the fact that uh, you – I don't know whether this is going to work, but are you in love with your car? Have you got a feel for your automobile? There we go. Maybe not. But, uh, <laughs> it's best all we can come up with. But uh, we should let you get on your way and, and go do and go pick up. But um, it's been wonderful, and thanks for joining us on, on the Back of House podcast.
2: Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That was a fast-paced, very interesting discussion. We, I I'm very guilty of being pointy end and in a city, I suppose, in terms of my outlook on uh, things generally, culture, food and beverage. So it was really interesting to me to get a perspective from mass market, hard numbers, uh, the realities of uh, where food uh, spend goes, I think. That was one thing yeah. you know, my brain is still trying to process. What about you?
1: Uh, mate, I, I thought he was obviously highly intelligent, um, extremely commercially astute. He knows what he's doing and there's, that's obviously supported by the roles that he's had. Um, I, I thought probably the most interesting takeaway was the, it's the the challenge for businesses like McDonald's is increasing capacity not um, driving demand. Um, it's kind of servicing demand, not driving demand. And I, I've, I've long thought this, and I don't know if this is a contentious view, but um, and it's not, this shouldn't be negative at all. We'll probably end up coming this out if you give me bad feedback on it. But QSR and businesses like McDonald's, they're kind of like um, pokey businesses within the traditional hospitality sense, right? It's like revenue is is linked to how many machines you have. Um, not necessarily how many customers you need to create because this this seems to be like an endless supply of people coming in. And I know there's nuance to that completely, but... Um, I just, uh, you know, if your if you, revenue growth is related to having more sites and having longer trading hours, it's a pretty remarkable place to be able to operate, I would suggest, because it's totally um, different to a traditional on-premise restaurant or bar or cafe.
0: Mm. Well, I think it's uh, important in the context of the timing of this episode because uh, what we know is that the world is in hospitality, uh has been turned upside down, uh, you know, for, for many of the listeners that we have, and I think if there's learnings that you can take from things outside your comfort zone, uh, and and but in a related part of the sector well what a great opportunity so uh, I don't know what those things are to be clear I mean you know people listening to this might I think pick up on the I mean people talk about delivery and pick up now I mean it's been uh, uh, accelerated and ties in quite well to the last guest we had on Mark Calabro from Hungry Hungry but like it's uh, yeah, hopefully it's some insights around that that um, people in the entertainment space widely might be listening to thinking they might be able to learn something from.
1: Well, yeah, and also the shift in model and the willingness to do so. Like if you took a business like Chipotle over in the States, by his reckoning, they're a business that is unable to shift or unwilling to shift their model. And you, who knows what GYG will do to their business as time permits the opportunity for them to do it. Um, and he'd the willingness of GYG to do it here when he entered as CEO and said, look, this is not going to work. You need to, to make a change. Um, if that's one takeaway that you've just got to constantly evaluate what you're doing and how you're doing it in order to, you know, I guess have long-term success, that's a pretty good one, I think.
0: I have, we didn't get time to ask him, but is he retired now, do you think, and just driving around listening to Queen uh, or, and Fleetwood Mac in equal portions, picking up random customers?
1: I don't think he's working too hard. Um, But, yeah, as to whether or not he's retired, I'm sure he's keeping himself recently. I'm sure
0: he'd have a a range of consultancies. uh, uh, And if not after this podcast, he most surely will. Yep. Nice. Later.